Hi, this is Jeanette Creamore, or you may know me as JC. Welcome to Laugh, Learn, Lead, a podcast show that helps project sponsors, project managers, and their teams shape their project success stories. I'll be sharing interviews that bring a different perspective to what project success looks and feels like, as well as unpacking our conversations to provide insights and practical tips. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, listeners. Today I have with me Shane Hatton, who is a leadership communication speaker, author, and trainer. He's committed to helping leaders build and leverage their leadership platform to lead, inspire, and mobilize their people. He spent the last 12 years working with and speaking to leaders in organizations in government, retail, creative, not-for-profit sectors. He blends his experience in business and psychology to help leaders leverage important moments and communicate with greater confidence and clarity. He's based in Melbourne and the author of Lead the Room, Communicate a Message that Counts in Moments that Matter. We're going to talk about his career, why he wrote the book, and what his definition of good communication is, how we can be better engaged with our stakeholders, and how to make an impactful presentation. Hi, Shane. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm just really excited to have you. I love your book. Um, And when I first met you, there was something intriguing about your mannerisms and your content, and I just needed to know more about you. Um, Can you share with the listeners a little bit about your um, career highlights and now that you're well-recognized as a thought leader in communication? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We uh, So to give you a bit of uh, background on myself, I was originally from a small town up in Queensland called Bundaberg, uh, which I'm, I'm pretty sure we've kind of got some mutual, um, yeah. you know, story yeah. that kind of develops <laughs> a little bit in Bundaberg. Uh, but I actually started out working in local government and I started working in event management, which is kind of a strange place to start as one of your first jobs. But I often found working in event management, my job was to essentially help community leaders that were running events to really just mobilize and inspire and rally uh, volunteer teams. And so that was where I really started. Um, I eventually moved from there. Um, I studied marketing at university. So I moved uh, into a marketing role back at the university up there and worked doing uh, a marketing role for a number of years. Uh, I eventually went out and started my own marketing uh, business. Now, the time came to leave Bundaberg and we found ourselves moving. Uh, my wife and I moved down to Melbourne and uh, really got connected into the not-for-profit sector uh, down here in Melbourne. And again, I have always found myself in roles that have involved really mobilizing and rallying volunteer teams. Um, And so when I eventually made the decision to to restart my practice, uh, it was really a a no-brainer that I would move into this space around leadership communication and really helping leaders to lead and inspire and mobilize their teams. Yeah, we've got a couple of things in common there. Yes, I was Bundaberg born and raised. So yeah, it was um, it was real surprising when you shared your story about Bundaberg. I went, oh, there's another one. And also I worked in, um, volunteered in sport for 30 years. And so I know what you mean by that rallying of volunteer and how to get the best out of these people when they're giving up their, their time for free. That- that's the key, isn't it? Like what you just said, people who are volunteering their time, uh, they don't just give their time for nothing. They want to be inspired. They want to connect with something. They want to be aligned with a bigger picture vision and purpose. And so, especially in the community sector, the not-for-profit sector, that's a really big one. Mm, Yeah, I get that. 
So your book, Lead the Room, love it. And as I was mentioning um, earlier, page 14, I get it. I think your your figure and the way that you've laid out that reference diagram for the full, you know, the rest of the book has really um, set it up for me. Why did you write this book? What was the problem you were solving for people? Yeah, it's always, I, I get asked this question a lot in terms of why, why would you write this specific book? And in the book, I actually talk about this idea that we've really got to consider before we say anything, we've got to ask ourselves the question, do I have something valuable to say? I think it's always a good place to start. And for me, when I was preparing a lot of the content of this book, uh, I had been training in this content for the last two and a half years and it had been helping quite a lot of people. And for me, it was really about what can I now do to capture all of this, this content and this expertise that I'd had in this area and, and put it in a way that's a, a really practical guide for people. Um, you mentioned the, the diagram on page 14 and that's, that's really the essence of the book, which, which talks about a bit of a, the journey that leaders find themselves on. There's, there's different types of leaders when, when they hear the word public speaking, when they hear the word, you know, uh, you know, communication, they find themselves having a number of different responses to it. And I think some leaders, they find themselves in this place where they go, you know what, public speaking, that's not me. And they just avoid it altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really dangerous place to find yourself in because I often describe them as the invisible leader. Um, and the invisible leader, the challenge with invisible leadership is that you can't follow an invisible leader, right? And so it's usually that, that bottom of the kind of ladder space where people avoid it. More often than not, I find people who find themselves in one of two areas. Either they resist it, which is they'll do it if they have to, or they have this kind of mindset of, well, I'll speak and you listen. And I think down that space, people just feel disengaged, they feel disconnected, or they just feel often what I, they say to me is, I just felt like I was spoken at rather than being communicated with. And so really the book was a tool to help me, people move beyond that place where they just felt like they were speaking at people so that they could really connect and influence and inspire and engage people. Yeah, I get it. How many times have we been, well, I've been to a conference and you might have six presenters the first one, I get it. The next one is like, please get me out of here. <laughs> the third one is, oh, yeah, they're going to be better. So we all have a style, but I love that the way that you did map that out to say that it's about not being spoken at but connected with. It, mm. I really get that. So thank you for writing the book because it's actually um, one of my key reference go-to books now um, when so I'm much. working with, yeah, when, I, when I'm actually helping um project leaders and sponsors understand their style and where they might be stuck. So I actually use your book as a reference and I encourage them to read it as a sense of understanding their strengths and where they currently fit um, in their kind of confidence level. Mm. Mm, so thank you for putting uh, your experience to um, to print. It's very oh, valuable. Thank you. <laughs> now, you are the expert, or for me, you are, and I know a lot of people in the thought leadership space uh, refer you as um, the communication guru. Can you explain to the listeners your definition of what a good communication style is? Oh, that's a great question. Communication style is such an interesting uh, way of looking at the way we communicate. And I think one of the, the traps we can fall into is to try to almost have this you know, these boxes that we need to fit into that goes, well, this is my communication style. I'm this type of communicator. And I think for some people that language can be helpful to, um, I guess, bring a greater awareness to what they do well. 
I think uh, when it comes to communicating communication style, um, I like to think about it a lot more in terms of the, our preferences in the way that we communicate. Um, so you often find that we have different preferences in the way that we like to communicate. So some people, you, you know, you watch them step up on a stage and they just love telling stories and they can get engrossed in their stories. Um, you've got other people who maybe come from a more technical background and they just love getting, you know, right down into the nitty gritty of the data and the detail. Um, and I think while we have preferences, it's important to be aware of those preferences. I think the importance of, of that awareness is really about, understanding that not everybody in the room is going to necessarily connect with those preferences. And so it's not about saying, well, should I not tell stories or should I not go into the data or the details? I think when we're aware of our preferences and the things we tend to lean on predominantly, it helps us to be a bit more well-rounded in, in the way that we communicate. So if we do like to tell stories, it forces us into that space where, okay, maybe I should back this up with some research or some, uh, some, something a bit more concrete. Um, or you find someone who maybe they're the kind of person that just loves sharing big ideas or maybe a bit abstract ideas. They're the people who really evoke a lot of thinking in an audience, mm. but there might be two or three or a handful of people in that room when they hear those big abstract ideas, the first thing they're thinking of, yeah, but what does that mean? What can we do with that? How do we apply that? Um, and so it's just once we're aware of our preferences, I think we can then lean into those preferences, be authentic in how we communicate, but not also so lose people in the room who don't necessarily resonate with that. Yeah, get it. So what I heard then is that a good communication understanding of ourselves is to know our preference but probably learn the, um, not the opposite, but the unbiased part of that. So like you said, that storytelling with the data and the research, not... Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of blending it so it allows everyone in the room to get it. Yeah, I often use the example of, I use use four different lenses that people can communicate through and I often say, if you have a key text, and so, so that text may be anything, it could be, you know, um, some some data, you know, it could be some, uh, you know, it could be a case study, whatever that key text is, ask yourself then, how do I translate that in a way that is maybe different, uh, that can connect with people that maybe don't think in that concrete way, then ask yourself, what are some of the ideas or the thoughts that I have about that? And then fourth is how do I then give something to people that they can take away? Um, so for example, I use, often use the example of uh, Gallup's findings around uh, employee engagement in Australia. If you were to take a guess at, at how many people would be engaged, what percentage of people would consider themselves engaged at work? What do you think that would be? Oh, look, I would say, say 34%. Yeah, 34%. So Gallup found that in Australia, about 13% of people would consider themselves engaged at work, which is scary, right? Well, I'm horrified. I thought I'm absolutely horrified. Oh, gee, I thought a third. <laughs> right? Oh. And so then they say, you know, around 60% of people would consider themselves not engaged and around 20% people would say that they're actively disengaged. Now, if you're a numbers person, that makes sense to you. And, and we still can kind of resonate in somewhat. Uh, in some way. And so often the way that I translate that is I say, imagine you've got 10 people sitting in a boat and they're rowing. You've got one person down the front of the boat rowing. You've got six people kind of with their oars out of the water. And you've got another couple of people down the back rowing in the opposite direction. Mm. Right. Do you see how that, yeah. that, that text then gets translated in a way that people go, Oh, and so then my thoughts around that is, do you ever wonder why it can be, it feels like you're going against the tide sometimes when you show up to work? 
Well, chances are there's probably some disengaged people that are really pushing you and, and kind of holding back. And so then the takeaway is, well, what do we do with that? Well, I think there's some things that we need to actually action to help shift some of the, the actively disengaged people to people who are engaged at work every day. Yeah, I get that. I use analogies a lot in my preference of communication as well, similar to you using the boat, because I could get the visual as well as the emotion. Like mm. it's kind of like saying, well, yes, I can visualize the people rowing or not yep. rowing, um, but yep. I've got the feeling of tiredness because I'm going to be out in this water a very long time because I'm not going anywhere. Like yeah. I'm staying still um, and I need progress or I need momentum. Um, yeah. So, so you can see how you, you resonate with the, the metaphor, right? Yeah. Whereas other people in the room would really resonate with the data. And so it's not either or, it's kind of both end. Mm. And I think great communication appeals to both of those preferences in the room. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. I work with a lot of project teams. That's my background. That's my go-to speciality area. Do you have any um, suggestions on how project teams could probably improve their communication approach with their stakeholders. Now, stakeholders can be anything from executives to industry partners um, to a subject matter expert to the customer. So there's a lot of different um, people, but project teams have to really connect and engage with these um, stakeholders. How would we suggest that they improve that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one of the big shifts I've seen in leadership communication um, has been the shift away from, I guess, just a focus on what we're actually saying to it being more holistically um, about who we are um, and what we say and how we say it. Um, in the book, I use a bit of a metaphor of, you know, imagine if we'd never met before and I showed up to your doorstep and just said, hey, do you want to come and get in the car with me? Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but there's very few people who are trusting enough to say, yeah, of course, I'll just jump in the car. Let's go for a drive. Um, Often I say to people, first and foremost, I want to know who are you and do I trust you? Mm. The second thing I want to know is, well, what for? Like, where are we going? And then the last thing is, well, do you know how to drive a car? And, And I often say to people, you know, you could be the best driver in the world, but if people don't trust you and you're not going anywhere valuable, nobody's getting in the car with you. And I say the kind of metaphor is the same in terms of leadership communication. It's not just about being a great speaker or being a great communicator. It's first and foremost, well, who are you and do people trust you? Have you done the work to actually position yourself in a way that, that, it, that builds trust with your team? The second thing is, do you have something valuable to say? And then once you've done those things, do you know how to deliver that in a way that's really impactful? Um, so I would say for people who are looking to, to improve their communication with their stakeholders, the first thing to ask yourself is that is that that trust piece is is well how am I known? Do my people trust me? And what am I doing to help reinforce and build that trust? Um, and then the second thing is when you're communicating, have you taken the time to really um, discover what it is that you have to say and why it's really valuable for the people that you're communicating with? Mm-hmm. And also remember the previous thing we were talking about is don't. You know, project teams are quite technical in their language. They can be very much subject matter experts and so they get caught up with the data or the language that they know and probably don't present it in a way to allow the stakeholder to get it in their language. Mm. Um, yeah. That's an interesting one as well. Like I was doing uh, a, a program um, last week with a room full of who I would see 
um, as technical experts. And when I asked them in the room, I said, how many people in here, there's a room of 21 people. I said, how many people here prefer to hear um, stories versus people who prefer to hear data? And 19 out of the 21 people said, yeah, I'm a storyteller. I love hearing stories, which we can often box people in and say, well, they're in a really highly technical area, so they probably prefer this. And I think that's that's just a challenging assumption to make. So we've got to, again, that's why we come back to that going, we need to have both ends rather than either or. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, get it. Yeah, that's that's really good point. Um, for me, then if we look at even project teams talking to themselves, you know, within their own, yeah, in their own office space or in their own uh, breakout areas, I find that sometimes the um, the barrier of communication within themselves is there, and so mm-hmm. kind of working on that self awareness of what language they each bring to the team. Um, yeah, like you said, don't assume that the technical person is always going to be technical, um, and ask them ha- what their language is. I find that works well in understanding the language preference within the project team. Mm. It's interesting. One of the internally within teams, we've got to think about how as a leader, we're already perceived by people. Um, One of the biggest challenges I think is that um, we don't take enough time to ask ourselves, how do people know me or how do people perceive me? And the, and the better question is, is that how I'd like to be known or perceived? Um, I was at a conference um, speaking a couple of years ago and they were introducing somebody to stand up and speak and I'd never met this person before, didn't know anything about them, but um, I got a few text messages in my pocket um, on my phone. I pulled it out to have a look. There were some people at the conference with me who I knew. And in that group chat, people started posting news articles of this person who was currently under investigation for workplace bullying and harassment. And straight away, um, Mm. that person had started to communicate from almost a deficit place. Um, And we've got to actually ask ourselves, okay, well, if if I'm about to stand up and deliver a presentation um, on our bullying policy and around the hallways I'm known as a bully, it's going to undermine everything that I'm about to say. Um, And so both good and bad, we need to consider how we're already known and remember that everything that we do says something about us. Um, and we need to make sure, is that how I'd like to be known and is it helping me to get my message across? Yeah, that's so valuable. I think some project teams come with a perceived reputation of, you know, um, the team before them, especially if they've had a, uh, a second go at attempt at something that they kind of sometimes stakeholders can label them, oh, here's this project team again, you know. they're mm. all, yeah. So they're already kind of taking, like you said, though, the media or the um, what they're known as um, before they actually have listened. So that's a really good point, Shane. I like mm-hmm. that. That's uh, very valuable. Um, so, yeah. Look, I, you've mentioned that you've been to conferences to um, present. I've actually um, heard you recently on stage here in Melbourne and did a wonderful job um, at a public sector uh, workshop. Um, oh, thanks so much. That was really good. Your your uh, presentation was really engaging. How you know when we are up on stage, and it can be not a stage of a hundred. It could be um, we're in front of a project board. Um, there could be mm. ten executives around the table. For me, that's your stage, or your stage yep. could be um, your own team. It could be um, 
public. You might be representing the organisation at a public event. But when we are presenting, what's something we can do to make real impact? Yeah. I, I think if we go back to the conversation we were having before, the biggest question I always ask people is before you get up to say something, ask yourself whether you've got something really valuable to say. I think the the differentiator between a person who uh, is just an excellent and impactful communicator uh, versus a person who gets up and speaks is the person has done the extra work um, to really understand why it is that they're speaking in the first place and how it is that it's going to benefit the people that are in the room. Um, There's a great um, article from one of the curators from the TED um, conference and they basically say that if you want to get into speak at TED at one of the TED events, you need to be able to distill everything that you're about to say into 15 words or less. And it's always a great um, uh, bit of a test that I, I work with people that I'm, the clients that I work with when someone says, oh, I've, you know, I've got a presentation coming up. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. The first question I ask them is, is tell me what, it, what your big idea is in 15 words or less. And if a person can't do that, I think that's the very first place we would start. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, okay, what, what have you got that's valuable that's worth saying? Mm, absolutely. Rather than just listening to your own voice. Well, I mean, it's easy to speak for 30 minutes. I mean, we, we, could, we could have a conversation and speak for 30 minutes. The bigger question is, is, is it actually helpful for me to speak for 30 minutes? Or could I get the message across in 20 minutes or 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. So for me on reflection... What is it, I'm quite a, um, when I connect with people and when I do my um, speaking, I actually am quite interactive. Um, I really mm. like the, the audience to do something and it might be having a chat to the person next to them, might be writing something down because I find that the presentation when it's impacting the most is when they can um, connect and repeat something. Is that something that we should be also be aware of when we're in a group situation is looking for those that probably don't get it and then to probably change our approach so that they do get it? Or do you just go down that 80-20 you know, rule, 80% of people are going to get you and 20% in the group aren't? What's kind of your you know, expertise on, on, uh, in front of people? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, and I guess a big part of this is going to come down to the the length of time that you have with a room. Um, I was speaking to someone just recently who told me that they were given 90 minutes for a keynote session. <gasps> and I, I, if, 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 yeah, I think that's most people's response when they hear about a 90 minute keynote. And so our conversation was very much about how do we make this interactive? How do we give people something they can do right away, break it down into small increments, Um, with really clear take-homes for each of those increments. Um, Think about, you know, just television in general. When people are watching, I mean, if anyone who does watch television nowadays, um, one of the things that um, happens in a television show is there's these ad breaks at increments throughout the show. And the ad breaks just give people that sense of that little bit of space to kind of digest what they've just watched, Um, you know, kind of just break the rhythm, break the flow a little bit. And I think when you're preparing a keynote, you do need to have those moments within it that um, allow people that space to sit with an idea, um, to be able to process the idea. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think if, if you're in a, in a keynote and you've got the ability to be able to have that space where people can you know, have a quick conversation about it or 
um, if even if not, it's, even if it's not having a conversation with the person beside them, often things I like to do is go, okay, here's one idea. So the question is now, what could you do with that? I want you to take 60 seconds and I want you to write down on your notepad or in your phone, one thing that you can do with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just again, like, again, that comes down to, down to the practical takeaway side of things. Um, it's about going, if you're a big ideas person, give people some real practical, concrete takeaway, or if you're a real practical, concrete takeaway, be okay from time to time with leaving people with a bit of an abstract idea that maybe doesn't have a solution um, and allowing people to sit with that. Yeah. And, and silence is such a powerful tool, isn't it? Like, oh, absolutely. I don't think, well, I know myself, you know, a junior project manager, I thought I had to have the answers for everything. And so I would fill the silent void with just words to, because I thought okay. that I had to know the answer. And, and it's only, you know, after many years of you know, bruises and, uh, and learning mm-hmm. that I know that silence is very powerful. And I kind of try to create that. In the yeah, room, especially on the back of a big point or a big idea, um, we, I always encourage the people I work with to really have um, one central idea that you want to leave people with. Um, and I think that's often we have multiple ideas, which results in that kind of mixed messaging, which makes it really difficult for people to take away an idea. But I often say to people, if you've got one big idea that you want to drive home, then you need to let people sit with that for a few moments. And sometimes two or three seconds. Um, for an audience can feel like 20 or 30 seconds on the stage. Um, and so we've got to learn to be okay with that, that discomfort that we feel just to allow the people in the audience to sit with an idea just for a few moments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your tips um, as I'm sitting here uh, reflecting and, you know, just checking myself, I think these tips can be applied also in meetings like, don't have a meeting for just for a meeting's sake. If you've got something to say or a decision um, or an action, then have a meeting, but just don't have a meeting because it's in your calendar as a repeating yeah. event. Um, I, so I think when people are listening to, to you um, today, they'll be able to apply this to a lot of different scenarios where they're, when they're communicating. It's not just to the keynote speaker or the person having a group presentation it can be in the um the smaller facilitation of uh workshops or the um the you know the board meetings or the governance meetings so yeah thank you absolutely there's always there's a great uh uh principle that that came out of a book called major stick by chip and dan heath and it's the principle of commander's intent now i love i love this one really commander's intent is a a one-line statement of what success looks like um, and it's often given by the commander in the military that gets passed down through the different ranks where they add operational plans and tactical plans. And the thing I love about it is that any given moment at any point in time, any person can go to the top of that document and ask themselves, okay, what's the one line statement of success? Um, so even if the tactical plan changes, even if the operational plan changes, we all know what success looks like. So what you just touched on there was really great in terms of, okay, in this meeting, what is what does success look like for this meeting? In this presentation, what does success look like in this presentation? So that way, if my time changes, you know, if the room changes, I know what my success looks like out of this presentation or meeting. Yeah, that's, that's gold. That, that one's going in the top shelf, that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you travel around a lot. I know that um, 
you're not just here in Melbourne. You do travel um, lots of different places. What do you enjoy most about helping your clients? Um, what is it that excites you? Yeah, I, I, I think the thing that I love the most is watching a person when we start working together and they hear that idea of public speaking or they, 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 they try to think of themselves or imagine themselves standing on a stage or at the front of a boardroom and that thought terrifies them. And then by the time we finish working together, watching them get excited by the opportunity, seeing it as an opportunity to lead, not just as an opportunity to speak. Um, and just recently I, got, I had someone come up to me probably more than 12 months ago, uh, we did work together and I hadn't spoken to them uh, for quite a while. And when we first met, they were um, just starting out in a role that was going to require them to do a lot of public speaking. And I remember sitting them and that the terror in their voice when they first had this conversation about what was going to be expected of them. And then to hear them 12 months later, um, this person's just been invited to go and speak and represent the Australian government in Ethiopia at a conference. Wow. And she said to me, it excites me about the opportunity and to hear the change just in the last 12 months since we worked together. That's the thing that I think really lights me up and it really gets me excited. Yeah. Congratulations to that person for yeah. trusting the process, but having the leap of faith in themselves that they are good enough and, and to follow your tips and tricks. Like if I know that, um, you know, there's some gold moments in your book, but if people just take, like you said, one thing, and mm. take it and absorb it and practice it, well, then they yeah. take the next thing. They don't have to do yeah. it all at once. So, yeah, good on that person. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, how can people get in touch with you, Shane? Look, you have got um, so much value to offer organisations. What, what's the best way that listeners can get in touch with you or buy your book or what? What's give us a hint? Yeah. Yeah, we can connect on LinkedIn. It's always a fun place to, to connect. Um, or you can visit my website, which is just shanemhatton.com. And uh, if you want to do want to pick up a copy of um, Lead the Room, you can pick that up in, in most good books, good bookstores. Oh, thank you. And I'll put those details um, on my website too when I publish this episode. Um, thank you so much for your time and um, really, really, really value uh, your insights into communication and um, how to lead the room. So thanks, Shane. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a few ideas to take action. I would love for you to rate and review the show. I too need feedback to learn. Cheers for now. Remember, a day without laughter is a day wasted.